9 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9. Yeah, it's, that barbecue smells real good. Let's see, we can do this five minutes. No. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust to overlook your work and the love you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to those to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Fear is something that we all deal with. Fear is something that we we struggle with through the whole of our life. As we get older, our fears change, but fears don't always go away. When you're a child, you might be afraid of the monster under the bed. You might be afraid of the dark, shadowy corner. But eventually you get older, you grow out of that. You may grow into your teenage years, and you may be fearful of what your peers might think of you. You might be afraid about going to new schools or other new things. And as you grow up then, even as an adult, your fears become uh, even more different. You become fearful over how will I pay the bills? How will I provide for my family? What happens when something happens to someone I love? But fear is something that tends to stay with us. It's easy for us at times, to think something bad will happen than to think something good will happen. We presume the worst. We are hesitant to believe the good, even when it comes to matters of faith. So I could stand here today, and, or as I did last week, And preach upon a topic like apostasy and say, uh, you better watch out, you better do this or you may lose your faith. And it's easy for us to believe, well, that's me. I'm the one who's going to lose my faith. I may preach passages that say uh, something to the effect of, hey, there are those ungodly who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or, hey, there are those in the church who Jesus will say, I never knew you. And our hearts, we go, is that me? That probably is me. And there are reasons for these warnings. There's reasons why we saw what we saw last week. And that's, he starts here saying, though we speak in this way, the way that he's talking about speaking is, is saying, hey, you, you, you need to pay attention to what you're doing because if you see these things, if you taste of these heavenly things and you fall away, you'll, you'll, you'll prove in yourself not to have a true and earnest faith. And he says, though we speak this way, And then he's going to give us a a word of hope. He's going to say, yes, you can still have assurance. You can still know that you are God's own child. But your life needs to reflect that salvation. 
I think the, for the Christian, the big issues we tend to deal with are this. How am I saved? And then what do I do with it? The fact that I'm saved, how do I move on from there? That's kind of the whole of the Christian life can be summarized, and it branches out into all the details. But how am I saved? And then what do I do after? How do I live after I'm saved? J.C. Ryle, he wrote this book called Holiness. If you ever want to sit down and read a theological book, which you're probably saying, yep, nope, tune it out now. <laughs> read Holiness. It's such a good book. But he says this. I bless God that our salvation is in no wise, in no wise depends on our own works. But I never would say, or excuse me, but I never would have any believer for a moment forget that our sense of salvation depends much on the manner of our living. Our sense of salvation depends much on the manner of our living. It doesn't depend upon our manner of living but it depends much. Excuse me. It doesn't, it, it doesn't rest on that, but it depends upon it. It's an issue of confidence in salvation. What does he want to tell? At the heart of Hebrews is a pastor. A pastor talking to his congregation, who's worried for his congregation, who wants them to rest firm in their faith. And he's just kind of said this, like he just dropped this bomb on him, Right? You better rest secure in your faith or you'll not prove to have no faith. And he wants them now to encourage them. Remember last week as we looked at this, he moved from the first and second person to the third person. And now he moves back. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So we look at those better things, we're going to see three things a better salvation, a better promise, and a better path. A better salvation, a better promise, and a better path. The writer here, as we've said, he knows he's shaken up his people, and so now he seeks to calm their fears. And he begins doing this even in just the simple way that he dresses, addresses them. Beloved. He calls them his beloved. He's in, he, he's Wants them to understand that he loves these people. And then he gives them two reasons why they should be confident. The first reason is what he believes about them. And the second is what he knows about God. Note the difference there. What he believes about them and what he knows about God. Let's begin by looking at what he believes about them. He says in verse 10, for God is not so unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. He begins by mentioning their works, the things that accompany Salvation, the things that are always present in faith. We talk about this as the fruits of the spirits in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. These are the things that we can discern in our own lives. And they help us determine our spiritual condition. 
And right here, he says, I know your works. Later in Hebrews 10, he's going to tell them about those works. And more specifically, he'll say things, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggles with suffering, hard struggles with suffering, sometimes being exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prisons and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. I don't want to dive into this too much because we will hit this. But note some of the With joy, you accepted the plundering of your property. For the sake of the gospel, these are the things they had endured. He says, I've seen in your lives the evidence of saving faith, not saving faith itself. We always have to make that distinction, and I'll make it like 18 times more in this sermon. It's not that he sees... Those are your works, and therefore you're saved. He says, no, these are the evidences of the reality of the truth that is in you. How do you show your love for God? Is, is ultimately the question here. And at the end of the day, it's about the things we do. We, I, I, often I will struggle with my children about what we say and what we do. And oftentimes love is, is something we'll talk about. How do you show someone that you love them? Can you show someone that you love them simply by saying, I love you, and then treat them however you want to treat them? No, how you treat someone is evidence for the way that you feel about them. So if you say that you love your sister or you love your brother, but you're constantly doing negative things towards them, what does that say about your love for them? The same is true in the Christian walk. If we say we love God, but we do not love the things of God, do we really love God? We need to have the evidences of faith in our life. So we go to, we go to church, we worship, we read scripture, we pray, we minister to other Christians, which is such a big part of it. If you look at scripture and talk about the Christian life, so much of it is about our ministry to other Christians. Even in Hebrews 10, when he talked about the evidences of their faith, you suffer for the sake of the gospel. You also suffered alongside others who were suffering for the sake of the gospel. You endured plunder of property. You had compassion on those in prison. 1 John four nineteen and 20 says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In fact, even here in this passage, he talks about it as a ministry of service to one another that you showed for his sake in serving the saints. This Greek word here, diakonoi. Diakonoi, does that sound familiar? Deacon. It's where we get the word deacon. The word deacon literally means table servant. It means waiter. Deacons, you're to be waiters. Remember that when we have lunch, Rusty. Stuart. <laughs> no, but that's what it's saying. And, and it's not talking about deacons here. It's talking about all of us. We're to be table servants serving one another. He says, I've seen the way you serve one another for his sake. For God's sake, you serve one another. Serving the saints 
And he says, even as you still do. He says, this is not just something I have seen. This is something that I see you are still doing. If we've come to know God, if we come to know his love for us, if we've embraced the salvation that he has given to us, then we respond to him in gratitude and love. I mentioned J.C. Ryle's holiness. This whole book is about that. It's all about the sanctification, the process of becoming more holy, of, of showing gratitude. And one of the things he says in there, and I can't remember, it's been so long since I've heard this quote, but I've used it a thousand times. And if I butcher it, I butcher it. I need to read the book again to find out exactly what it says. But J.C. Ryle says this. Love is displayed through obedience. I'm sure that's not exactly how he said it. That's the gist of it. We show love to God by, by obeying him. And we obey him by loving one another. We have a better salvation And we could go on and on about this, how we've been freed from sin and death, how we've been brought, or how we've been saved by the blood of the lamb and brought into a new family. But it must find its expression in the way that we live. In essence, it's this, we are to live as if we are actually saved. We have to live as if we're saved. It means our thoughts and our actions change. But when I say that, know this, it's not mere reprogramming. We have a tendency to say, oh yeah, to to do this, I must change my thoughts and action. And, And what we're actually doing is reprogramming our mind and not our hearts. So it's not necessarily our words and our thoughts. It's the intent of our heart, what flows from your heart. I think a good example of this is language. In our society, in this day and age, there are a set of words that we're not to say, right? We call them curse words, words of curse. But the reality is this. If you, just because you change the brunt of those words, but you don't change your heart, it makes no good difference. So when you hear, hear Christians say things like, shoot, or darn, or I hear Christians say this all the time, OMG. We know what OMG stands for, right? Oh my God. Just because you're saying OMG and not oh my God does not take away from the fact that you're actually saying oh my God. Just because you say shoot instead of the other word, that's similar but not the same, doesn't mean that you're not, that the heart intent is not the same. Just because you say darn and not the other word doesn't mean that your heart intent is not the same. Because words are just what we make them, right? The words that we call curse words are only curse words because that's what our society, nowhere in the Bible does it say here's these list of words that you're not allowed to use. No, it says what you need to watch what's flowing out from your heart. So when I say it's not mere reprogramming, which we tend to make it, it's saying, well, you've heard me say this before. You probably heard this all the So I, I'm not going to go with girls who curse or swear, or I'm not going to curse or swear or go with girls who do, right? And that's not what it's about. It's not about simply not cursing and not swearing. And I'm not saying here, hey, so you can go curse and swear all you want. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's the intent of the heart. It's what flows out of the heart. We have a salvation that is better. Therefore, let's live as if it is better and true for us. So we have a better salvation, but second, we have a, a better promise. We have a better promise. 
So if the first had to do with how we respond or how, as the writer said, or, or as I paraphrase it here, how he believes they live, the second has to do with what he knows about God. Because at the end of the day, I, I can look at Alan's life all day long and I can say, I see these evidences in Alan's life, but it's still just what I see in Alan. I don't know Alan's heart. At the end of the day, I can never know the true depths of Alan's heart. Only God can, right? But that's not true when it comes to God. There are things that we can know with certainty about God. And some people will take this text and they'll misuse it. And they'll defend a works-based faith. And they'll say, well, God's not unjust to overlook your work. Therefore, you better work hard because God's not unjust and he won't overlook it. And that's not what's going on here. In fact, we can go all over scripture to see how that's not true. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. And this is not your own doing, for it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. John Calvin on this text says the apostle is not referring expressly here to the cause of our salvation. And therefore, no conclusion should be drawn from this passage about merits of works. It is clear everywhere in scripture that there is no other fount of salvation but the free mercy of God. So if it's not about our works, salvation, it's about someone else's work. It's about God's work. And yes, he treasures the things that we do. Every act of love, every act of fidelity, every petition, every prayer. He even says he, he, he'll reward the works that we do. He says, God is not so unjust to overlook your works. And we see other passages that talk about this, but it's not about the works in and of themselves. A.W. Pink, that's the last name, Pink, says, it, says this, what God rewards is only what he himself has wrought in us. What God rewards is only what he himself has wrought in us. It is the Father's recognition of the Spirit's fruit. It may look now, that means in this world, as though God places little value on sincere obedience to him, that in this world the man who lives for self gains more than he who lives for Christ. Yet in a soon coming day it shall appear far otherwise. There's this wonderful dichotomy that's going on in scripture. This, this is the goodness of your God. He looks upon your sins and he remembers none of it. Because he has worked salvation for you through Jesus. But then there's this other side of it. He looks at all the good that you do and he remembers all of it. Even though it is he who works that good work in you. And it's this wonderful, beautiful thing. I look at what you've actually done and I remember none of it. And I look at what I've done in your life and I remember it and I, and I love you for it. It's just like, what? That doesn't make sense, Daniel. You're like, yeah, it's great. It's like the lottery on steroids, right? Like you just, it doesn't make sense. It's like if someone were to come into your house this afternoon and say, look, um, I have a ton of money, and you owe me this money, but I'm going to act as if you don't owe me this money. But not only that, I'm going to give you all your, my money, and I'm going to call it yours. And you're like, okay, what's the catch? No, no catch. 
I'm just going to wipe out all your debt and give you all my money. And this is pale comparison, right? Pale comparison to what we're talking about here. But that's the reality of what's going on here. And we can rest in this because who said he would do it? God. And God does not fail in any of his promises. He has shown himself to us in all of scripture and over and over again. If God said he would do it, he did it. I don't know if it's still up. We used to have this poster up over here. And, and there's, it's this list of Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus. And if you, a lot of them come from Isaiah. And if you go through Isaiah and you just, just Isaiah, don't go anywhere else. And you look about all the things that had to be properly fulfilled in Jesus. You want to talk about the lottery again, right? Don't play those odds if, you, if you're really having to play those odds because they are long odds. But Jesus filled every single one of them. Everything God promised he would do, he has done without fail. He promised from the very beginning, from the fall, that he would send someone who would provide for you salvation. He has done it over and over again. He has done it. He has sent his spirit in in you in order to work good fruit in you. And it's this wonderful, it's this beautiful thing that when he looks upon me, when he looks upon you, he sees none of the sin, but he sees all of the good. And you look at it and you go, well, that's not fair. And And you're right. It's not fair, but it's awesome. It's wonderful. It's this beautiful thing. So we have a better salvation. We have a better promise. But but third and finally, we have a better path. In in verse 11, the writer continues and and he has a desire for his people. The pastor has a desire for his people. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. His desire for his people is that they would persevere. Would you persevere? My desire for you is that you would endure until the end to show diligence in the faith so that their hope, it it says here, you might have the full assurance of hope. Uh, The word here is filled up, that you would be filled up with hope. I love that, that terminology, filled up. You talk about going and taking a, a glass. I'm going to fill it up. His desire for us is that we would be filled up to the top, to the brim, with hope. To have the fullness of the hope that is theirs by faith. Would you have the fullness of hope that is yours by faith? That you would know the full assurance of salvation. To know the joy and peace that are provided for you in Christ. So what is the plan for this? That you would not be sluggish, he says in verse 12. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
When you talk about promises in the Old Testament, and certainly next week we're going to look at Abraham a little bit, but that, that tends to be where you talk about Old Testament promise. Promise given to Abraham is a big one, right? Over and over again, this promise given to Abraham. You're going to have a, a, a inherit a, a people and a land. And Abraham gets older. You're going to inherit a people and a land. Okay, I see the land, Canaan. I'm kind of here, but not going to stay here. See it, I know what it is. People, I don't have any kids, God. There's a problem here. What does Abraham do? Or Sarah through Abraham. Hey, here's Hagar. We got we to get on this. God's not doing it. Comes Ishmael. Abraham, God comes back to him and he says, I, I'm going to do it. And just so you know that it's me doing it, I'm going to do it through your barren wife. When it says Sarah was past the age of getting birth, it's not a euphemism, right? She had gone through menopause. No possibility at that point, right? When we talk about going through menopause, that is when a, a woman has reached the age where her body is no longer doing the things that it needs to do to enable it to get pregnant. And from that woman, God used her, said, look, Abraham, it's not you, it's me. I have a plan, a path for you. When we look at this, if we're to be imitators of those who, who through faith and patience inherit the promise how do you imitate someone? Yeah, you have to know them, right? In essence, he's saying imitate other Christians. Those who have come by faith. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And he'll flesh this out through chapter 11. When we hit chapter 11, you're going to think we're going molasses speed. All of chapter 11 is about these heroes of the faith, these wonderfully flawed, sinful people who faith and is accredited to, righteousness is accredited to. And we have all these. So you, you go to the Bible and you see all these. I would also commend to you, I had a professor in seminary who taught us evangelism uh, and missions. And over and over again, he said, you need to be reading Christian biographies. You must be reading Christian biographies and autobiographies. And, and why did he say this? Because in those stories, it's not just in the Bible that we see the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, this is the place where we see it the most, right? I'm not undermining that. But guess what? You also see the fulfillment of the promises in those around you. Go down the road. Go talk to Gingy. You want to know about God's promises being fulfilled in the light? Go to those. Go read uh, biographies of Christian missionaries. Read because it's the story of the testament of God's faithfulness to his people. And if we're going to be imitators, we have to know. But ultimately, wonderfully, we've been given another example. Of one who came and through faith and patience inherited a promise. You know who that one is? I half expected you to answer, Nate. Jesus. 
Jesus, who came like us, he took on flesh, who entered into the same struggle as us, so that he might lead us. He is the one, he is the trailblazer. What is a trailblazer? Someone who who goes on the trail and cuts it for the first time. He is the trailblazer of our faith. In our trials, we should seek fellowship with him. Paul says in Philippians 3, that I may know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, imitator of him in death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus has left a trail for us to follow in. He came and opened the gate once barred. He encourages us with his strength along the way, and we must be imitators of him. Walking in the steps of those who have come before us, ultimately in the steps of Jesus Christ. We often hear life from believers and non-believers alike. We hear life being compared to a, a journey, a path. Uh, you hear that, that famous poem, The Road Less Traveled or whatever. It's, uh, th- th- this idea of life being a path. And this is the encouragement that we're given here. We are to follow in the footsteps of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise, those who have gone before us, we are to take advantage of them. And this is a hard lesson of life. I, you know, as you grow up, there becomes a point where your parents say, you know, I wouldn't do that. I don't think you should do that. And you go, what do my parents know? And they may even say, I wouldn't do that because I had this experience. And We tend to be hard-headed. We want to learn lessons our own way. We may even rightly look at our parents and say, I've seen the way they messed up. Why would I take their advice? And the reality is it's because they messed up that they can give you the, the advice that they are giving you. But we tend to be mistrustful as a people of advice. We like to do it on our own. But as the writer of Hebrews will say in, in chapter 12, beginning of chapter 12, you are surrounded, surrounded by this great cloud of witness. It's this wonderful thing that all around you is this cloud of witness. These saints who have gone before you, you do not have to make the mistakes that they have made. Lay hold of this cloud as an encouragement. And of course, ultimately in chapter 12, and we'll see it eventually, he points on. After he says the cloud of witness, he goes right to Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is, did not, you know, I can, I'm not going to try to quote it because I'll misquote it. But in essence, he is the founder, the, the finisher, the perfecter of the, the race, and we are to follow after him. He is our example. He shows us how we're to live. What does, what does the faithful life look like? So remember, We have a better salvation, the salvation that is on display here that we will soon partake in. Salvation assures us of better things. It's a better end. We have to 
We have to display the fruits that work out the salvation. We have a better promise, a promise that comes from God. It's sure that it will not fail because God does not fail. And we have a better path. A path that has been laid out by Jesus himself. We must be reminded of the fact that Jesus is better. Better than what? Everything. Everything. So lay hold of him with confidence. Know that he will bring to fruition the work that he has begun in you. Yes, be careful. Do not become lazy, but press on. Press on. Run with endurance. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're so thankful for the salvation that he has provided for us, for the promise of that salvation which you have given to us, and the example of Jesus to walk that path. Lord, would you strengthen us, encourage us, and enable us to rest firm in him. We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.